Just one announcement that uh, we, 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 Bart just alerted me to really quickly here, and that's a really important one, so I don't want you to miss this one. Next week, we're gonna, we want to do a special love offering for Dave and Pat Wicks. And so uh, if you're just joining us, uh, Dave Wicks has served incredibly well for three years in our midst. He's, I mean, I don't know if you've ever met a more encouraging pastor in your life than Dave Wicks, but uh, I'll say that I haven't. And I've served with some really amazing leaders, but Dave is a top-level encourager. He has oozed love for this church for the last three years, and he has just kept holding this congregation up and just really encouraging us, encouraging us, encouraging us, encouraging us. And uh, that's not why you should give him money or anything like that. Next week, just pray about it. Just say, God, what do you want me to do? But let's love him next week. Let's, let's really bless them. And uh, so that love offering is next week. It's not receivable. We're not doing it to get something, uh, a receipt from the government. We just really want to bless them. Dave and Pat are entering a brand new season in their lives. They're going to take their loving hearts, their encouraging ways, and they're going to spread that all over the Canadian landscape because they're going to meet with pastors and, and, and leaders of churches and sometimes churches that are in turmoil and disarray. And he's going to come in and be this outside shepherd coming in to really uh, encourage churches and help them find their way forward. So they've got an incredible role ahead of them. We want to launch them well into that. Anyhow, so love offering next week. Uh, don't forget about it. And uh, now to preaching. I feel like I should introduce myself. <laughs> Hello, my name is Steve Atkins. I'm, I was going to say I'm one of the pastors here at Hillcrest, but Bart let me know this morning. So I'm the lead pastor here at Hillcrest. <laughs> and next Sunday is my birthday. <laughs> and we decided to have a big party. It's also, you know, it is really remarkable that Pastor Dave and I have the exact same birthday, March the 8th. And uh, so next week we're celebrating that we're 110. So um, I'll let you do the math, figure out. Well, we're both 55, of course, you know. Um, anyhow, rumor has it that we're expecting about 400 people to this party, and you're all definitely invited. Please come. We're really uh, looking forward to what God's going to uh, speak into our lives next week as a church and also... Uh, both Dave and I are really blessed for the different ones who've put effort into planning this special day. So I read the bulletin and I got a little bit nervous because the bulletin said I was going to tell you all about my sabbatical. And if anybody knows me, think if I have three months without preaching and then I come back and I'm supposed to fill you all in, like the children's workers should be alerted right now. <laughs> Anyhow, I'm not going to download everything from my sabbatical. I'm going to share a little bit, but um, I'll, through the next probably three weeks, not next week, but then the three weeks after that, I'll, some of that stuff is going to come out, and I'm going to share some vision pieces and some pieces that have to do with uh, um, just what God's been doing in my heart for, for a few years now. So a lot of those things are going to come out over the next few years, but uh, let me tell you about my sabbatical leave really quickly. Uh, what is a sabbatical? Um, I'll give you the short version. A sabbatical is so that you come back with something to offer. So people do this in the academic world. They go, you know, maybe they're a scientist and they go serve in a lab on the other side of the country and they come back with all these great ideas from what they did over there. Or maybe they're, they, they're, they're a specialist, maybe like a, a college professor takes a sabbatical so that they can really zone in on one specialty so that when they come back to their teaching job, they have that specialty which is attractive to the university to say, hey, we got this professor with his specialty. But the basic idea behind it is you come back with something to offer. And uh, so in the pastoring world, one of two types of sabbaticals often happens. One, a pastor gets a sabbatical because he's burning out. And uh, if a pastor's burning out, sometimes a church has that tool in their toolkit and they say, you know what, you're great, we love you, but we see that, you know, you need to get re-energized and so we're going to send you in on sabbatical so you can get re-energized. Or the other thing is, a pastor's doing just fine. And the church says, you know what? It's a time for advancement. Let's, let's use this time strategically so that we can go forward. And for me, my sabbatical was the second of the two. Um, and I'm really thankful for it. So what did I do? Really quickly, I'll give you the, the three-month rundown. In December, we took the family vacation. You know when you look back on your childhood, you think about the family vacation? 
Like there's one, and it was like the best one. It's funny, when we've gone out, like did different vacations over the summers, and you know, lots of times we just go to Buffalo Pound. That's our vacation. We just go, we take the RV, and it's downhill, so we know it'll get there, and maybe it'll get back. Anyhow, uh, so we go, and uh, that's usually our vacation. Then we ask our kids every year, we say, what's your favorite vacation? And they, you know, go through them. But this was the vacation to end all vacations. We, we drove into the United States, and we just kept going until we were rid of the snow. And then when we'd stay there for a while, and if it got chilly, we'd just keep going farther south. <laughs> and uh, we had a great time. We saw canyons and theme parks, and, uh, and we would sit around the lunch table, when we, and we would pray, and we would just, first we'd say, what are we thankful for? And inevitably we'd say, we're thankful that we're going on the world's greatest vacation, and that would lead back to a conversation about the world's greatest church who allowed us to do what we're doing. And so we're very grateful for that. In, in January... We did what pastors, I did what pastors rarely ever get to do, and that is to attend other churches. So for the, the 12 weeks of my sabbatical, I never went to the same church twice. And I made a hit list of churches before I went on sabbatical of churches I wanted to visit, and I pretty much got to all of them. I, there's one or two, no, there's only really one exception. But I, I made it to all these churches and learned and, and saw what they did, and there was innovative ideas and creative things. And it was just like I kept running into ideas and going, that idea is gold, and this one's great, and that's good, but not for us. And, you know, it was just really wonderful. And then when I could... I would take it an extra step and I'd sit down with the leaders of churches and ask them the questions I didn't know the answers to. And so I would ask them about all sorts of different things and, and got great mentoring and feedback. And so January was me traveling all over Canada mainly, uh, uh, Western Canada, the prairies, and, uh, and visiting all these incredible churches. And I'll tell you more about that in, in the days to come yet. And then in February, I stayed home and I read books on team leadership. And I tried to sort out all the stuff I'd been learning on my sabbatical so I could find the best of the best and apply it back here at Hillcrest. And I've read books on team leadership because up until now I've been a part of the team, but I haven't led the team. And I know that's a big change, and so I wanted to get up to speed with the best practices that exist out there, so I read lots. Uh, let me tell you about one place I visited on my sabbatical. Um, in January I went and spent five days at a monastery in Munster, Saskatchewan. How many of you know where Munster, Saskatchewan is? Some, some of you know? Okay. Any, up near Humboldt, anyhow. How many of you know where Humboldt is? Anyhow. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I went to this monastery, and it's a Benedictine monastery, and um, there's 16 black-robed Benedictine monks who live in this monastery. And um, so, you know, I, I go there, and, I, you know, I... I thought I'd be silent for five days. That was sort of the intention. I just have this time of silence, see if I did it without exploding. And, you know, and I, I, so I went there, but then I found out that the monks like to talk a little bit, and so suddenly I'm in conversations at lunchtime and these times, and, you know, suddenly I'm interacting more than I thought I would be doing. And one of the monks, he was, he was sort of the main guy who took care of guests. His name was, he was the guest master. That was his title. Um, his name was Demetrius, and I sort of got connected to Demetrius. Now, when I say his name was Demetrius, that's not his birth name. This is something I didn't know about monks. When, they, when a person decides to give their life to God in this specific way of becoming a monk, they go to the, the abbot, who's the head of the abbey or head of the monastery, and they give him three suggested names. They say, I'm, I'm willing to be called Peter, Paul, or John, or whatever. They give three names, and then the, abbey, the abbot prays about it, and he comes back, and he says, your name will be, and he chooses a new name for their life. So, Demetrius is, wasn't his birth name. It wasn't what, the name that he had up until age 30, but it was his monk name. So anyhow, I was hanging out with Demetrius, and he was telling me about how the abbey worked and all these things. And then the one day he said, would you like to visit the graveyard where all the monks are buried? Now, I thought about that, you know, it's already a bit of a mysterious place, you know, and you sort of like think, okay, the graveyard where the, the monks are buried. Like, you have a plot of land here where a whole bunch of monks are buried, and he's, he's like, yeah, it's just down there. So, okay. 
So I come walking with Demetrius. You know, he's got his black robe. And you know how those robes sort of fall over your eyes, sort of a little bit like a Jedi? Anyhow, so he's, he's walking in his black robe, you know, and I'm sort of walking beside him. And he takes me down this little path. And this path is like this little sort of road with just trees are totally like, are like make like a curtain around this path. It's just totally secluded by these trees that have grown in. So I'm walking down this path, don't know where I'm going, just me and Demetrius, this guy, I don't even know his real name. Anyhow, so I'm going down towards a monk graveyard, and as I get down towards the monk graveyard, he says, stop. So I stop, and I'm like, I don't know why we're stopping, but I'll just listen to him. Obviously, I'm trusting him, whatever he does. And he says, hold out your hand. Now, I'm looking at him and thinking, God, is this guy on our team? (laughs) Or is he one of those other types of monks? (laughs) Because here I am, standing at the entrance of a monk graveyard, and I don't even know where I am, and there's nobody who will ever hear my cries for help. (laughs) And he wants me to hold out my hand, and he's not telling me why. So I'm thinking, I'll hold out my left hand, because I can always strike faster with my right. (laughs) So I hold out my hand, and he does this. Of course, he's got his arms like this. Hold out your hand. And, and, I, and uh, I hold out my hand, and he does this. Into his, into his cloak to pull something out. And I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> I don't have time for anything more than that, just Jesus. <laughs> Comma. He pulls out his hand, and he puts something on top of my hand. And it's shelled peanuts. And he says, stay still. I'm like, I don't know why I'm staying still, but here I am holding out my hand with shelled peanuts in it. And then out of the, out of the, just boom, little bird flies down, lands on the edge of my hand, grabs a shelled peanut, and flies away. I was like, whoa. And then another one. And then another one. And then another one. And I was just like, little finches, these little finches were coming down. And these, these birds are so small that when they land in your hand, you're like, this thing doesn't even weigh anything. Like, it's so much lighter than your hand is. You're just like, wow. And they're grabbing the peanuts and going away. And I just sort of stood there in this alley next to a graveyard with these finches just coming one at a time and taking away all the peanuts. I said, this is incredible. After it was done, I said, so that's incredible. It's so amazing that those birds naturally trust humans. He says, they don't naturally trust humans. I said, oh, well, they seem pretty trusting. And he said, we've been doing this for 100 years, which is how long the monastery's been there. It's like, we've been feeding these finches for 100 years. People try to feed these same finches in the city. He says, they won't eat from their hand. But we've been training them for 100 years. He says, actually, we use it as a test. He said, test? A test of what? He said, some people, when they hold out their hand and hold the peanuts, there's not one bird will come. Then we know that there's something inside them that isn't right. There's some sort of turmoil in them that the birds can sense. And even though the birds might be starving in the middle of winter, and the thing that they need is right then and there, they still won't come and get it because they sense something's wrong. I thought, whoa, what a powerful illustration for us as followers of Jesus. See, we, we want to hold out to the world something that they need. We want to say, oh, you can have peace with God. In fact, God gives us this incredible peace, this incredible, you know, the thing that you're missing in your life, it's right here. But then people interact with us a little bit and they see that we're full of worry and anxiety and fear and insecurity and they're like, I'm not so sure about that peace with God stuff. It doesn't seem like you're ingesting your own product. What's wrong here? Today I want to talk about what I think is the, what I think is one of the greatest things that you can bring to your life in relationships. And that is a healthy soul. 
Let me say it straight. A healthy soul is the greatest thing you can bring to life and relationships. So how do you get a healthy soul? How do you get a healthy soul? How do you get the kind of soul that when you interact with people in your family, you're a blessing to them, you're, you're an encouragement to them, you're, you, you, you exude love instead of leeching it? How do you get that? How do you get a healthy soul that when you go into the workplace, you're a better employee, you make the environment better, people are happy you showed up? How do you get a healthy soul that the influence that you have in your high school is positive, even when all of everybody around you is negative or sarcastic or difficult? How do you get a healthy soul? How do you get a healthy soul so when you interact with people who might be indifferent towards God, that they see something there that's attractive to them and that they would desire? Well, the thing I want to say about a healthy soul is it, one of the things I want to say is it's dependent on God. A healthy soul is dependent on God more than human abilities. If you have a Bible, and I know you probably do if you're sitting in one of these benches, there's Bibles in front of you. If you have a Bible, you could turn to Exodus chapter 3, and eventually we're going to go to Acts chapter 7 too, but Exodus chapter 3 is where I want to start talking about this. Exodus chapter 3 is, is, is it's the st- telling the story of how God calls Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. And last, last spring, I was speaking at uh, seniors camp at Kettleston, so I was speaking to the, uh, I was, uh, speaking to the, the seniors who were there, and um, I shared a little bit of this. And some of those things that I shared at seniors camp last year was some of the things God was doing in my heart for the whole church. And I thought, I should share some of those things here as well um, because I think it's for the whole, a message for the whole church. So here's Moses at age 80. He's 80 years of age. And Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7 says, The Lord said, Exodus 3, 7, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So here's God's compassion on being verbalized. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. That's a real short sentence. So now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, and this is the beginning of a long list of excuses. Here we go. Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, I will be with you, and this will be a sign that it is I who have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Excuse number two, Moses said, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now I need to jump into Exodus 4 to continue the conversation because it's a long passage. God says more to him. God teaches him more stuff. And then his next excuse uh, comes in chapter 4. He says, Moses says, what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? What if they don't believe me? God responds to that. And then in verse 10, Moses says again, pardon your servant, Lord. Moses says this to the Lord. Pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue, so I can't talk very well. And the Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. And then here's the last one. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. 
Who, how does Moses see himself at age 80? He doesn't see himself as the best choice for God to choose to deliver the Israelites. And I think a lot of that stems back to who Moses was when he was 40. I just had a revelation when I was checking this passage. This blew me away when I heard the difference between how Exodus describes Moses when he's 80 and how Stephen, who's just about to become the first person to die for for being a Christian in the New Testament, talks about Moses at age 40. The difference is astounding. Okay, so Acts chapter 7 is where you find Stephen's description. Okay, so remember, we got an 80-year-old who doesn't think he's all that, can't talk very good, and really doesn't think anyone would follow him. We picked all that up from the passage at least, right? So that's who we got. An 80-year-old who's insecure, doesn't think he can talk very good, nobody would follow me. Listen to how Stephen describes him in Acts chapter 7. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. And Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. At 40, Moses thought that Moses thought at age 40 that people would follow him. In fact, he thought that God was using him to rescue them. Now, I wonder where Moses got that idea. I wonder where Moses thought that somehow at age 40, he could possibly be the answer for these Israelites in bondage. How did he possibly come to this conclusion that that he could possibly lead them out of bondage? How How did he come to that? Well, I think if you go back just a couple verses, you'll see how Moses thought of himself. I had to open it, I didn't have it in my notes, I'm just opening it here in the Bible here. But uh, chapter 7 of Acts and verse 22, yes. This is how Moses was when he was 40. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Oh, so he was educated. And he was powerful in speech. What? He was powerful in speech. The 80-year-old Moses didn't think he could talk at all. The 40-year-old Moses knew he was all that. He knew he could deliver a speech. He knew he could call the Israelites to rise up against their Egyptian oppressors and they would follow him. He was powerful in speech and action. Moses could get things done. So here you have this highly educated, powerful orator who could get things done, who believed that God was using him to deliver his people, only to fail miserably. He has to run from Egypt, and he spends the next 40 40 years on the backside of the desert. So 40 years later, God finds him, and he says, I want you to deliver the people of Israel. And he's like, who am I? Exactly. Exactly. It took 40 years for Moses to finally to get to the place where God wanted him. It took 40 years on the backside of the desert for God to get to the place where Moses was ready to be used. So I went away for three months of preparation for this season. Moses spent 40 years in preparation for, what God, for the, the season that God was going to bring him to. 
You might feel in your life that you've been in a Moses-like, I mean, maybe not 40 years. Maybe you feel like you've been in a season in your life that's been long and you're saying, it seems like God's forgotten me. And I remember when I had so much zeal and passion and I was going to do great things for him. And then those things happened. Those things, you know, didn't go as I, I was so disappointed and I was so hurt. And I, I got, and those people did that and, and this and, and all those things and it didn't add up. And I didn't know what God was doing and I got so disillusioned and suddenly here I am. It's been a long time since I heard God's voice. You may be just about ready to be the most useful instrument in God's hand that you've ever been in your life. See, God had to wait for Moses to get to the end of himself. See, if if Moses went with his education, went with his good speaking ability, and he went with his ability to get things done, and he rallied the Israelites, they fought off the Egyptians, and they managed to escape, well, then Moses would be getting the credit for it. See, Moses wanted to do something for God, which is good. But God wants to do things through people instead. See, a lot of times we march out and we say, I'm going to do something for God. And God's like, Is it, does it matter if I come along? You'll find later on in the scriptures that Moses has this incredible prayer time where he says to God this. He says, God says, I want you to go here. And God says, if you don't go with us, we, we aren't going to go. Unless you go with us, we won't go. That wasn't Moses at 40. Moses was ready to go and do something for God, but God said, no. Without me, you can do nothing. You need my strength to flow through you. You need to live in dependence on me. If you go in your own pride, I'll actually oppose you. James 4 says that God opposes the proud but he shows favor to the humble. So what's our response? Submit yourself then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. At the very end of uh, James 4.10, it says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So you don't have to worry about the lifting up part. That's God's job. But you have to depend on him for that. See, a healthy soul, I said, is the greatest thing you can bring to your life and relationships. But a healthy soul comes out of being dependent on God more than human abilities. You know what? While I've been on sabbatical, I've had different scriptures really speak deeply to me. Let me share one that's really encouraged me. One that's just sort of breathed peace into my heart. I've been thinking about leading here and I'm thinking about the the challenge of that. And Psalm 121 has just, it's been amazing. It's been been just a fresh wind in my heart. Psalm 121 reads this way. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. When I read that, it just jumped out at me. He will not let your foot slip. I thought, oh. Can I keep my own foot from slipping? No. I can't even keep my foot from going in my mouth. Never mind slipping. I know I'm going to slip. I see my track record. I know my history. Oh, yeah, I'm going to slip. Pretty much going to slip. If I'm the one who's trying to be vigilant... 
If I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to just concentrate and focus and make sure I never slip up, well, then I'm never going to sleep, am I? And what this passage tells us is that the only one who never slumbers or sleeps is God. The only one who can be vigilant about my foot not slipping is God. I can't. I can try, I can focus, I can, you know, try to be in the game. But the reality is, if I'm living only with my own human abilities, I'm going to start getting sick in my soul. But if I depend on God, if you depend on God, there's a peace there. There's a rest there. There's a right relationship there. It just breathes health into you. So what does this level of dependence require? What is this? I've said a healthy soul is the greatest thing you can bring to your life and relationships. A healthy soul is dependent on God more than human abilities. But what does this level of dependence on God require? How, do, how does that work? And how come it's so hard to find sometimes for Christians? How come sometimes it's not our experience? Here's my last point. A healthy soul fights for a healthy lifestyle. Now, some of this is going to seem ever so slightly contradictory. You're going to have to really follow here, okay? It took me a while to sort of walk my own self through it, and I hope I can communicate it well to you. Three years ago, Dave and I had a conversation. Pastor Dave Wicks and I had a conversation. He was brand new to the church here. And he was just sort of checking in on all the staff to see how we are doing and, and just doing some soul care, seeing how healthy our souls really were. So he was asking me questions, and I was very honest with him that I was fatigued. I was very tired at that, in that season. And I said, uh, man, I'm tired. So we talked about a few things. First thing we talked about was, what about a sabbatical? Would it be good for me to go on a sabbatical? So thought about it, talked about it. But then we started another conversation that was much more important than that other conversation. And this conversation was about lifestyle. How's your lifestyle, Steve? What are the things that, you know, give you life and help you to uh, maintain a healthy soul? And so we started to talk about those things. And the thing that I realized along the way is that uh, your health in your soul is a lot like your bank account. Now, let me illustrate. Like, so, for example, for example, if you come to me and you say, man, I need 100 bucks to get to payday, I'll be like, yeah, wow, okay, I'll see if I can get you 100 bucks to payday. But I might, just might say, how come you need 100 bucks to payday? And then you'd be like, well, you know, no reason. It just sort of seems to happen all the time. Then I'll be like, well, I'd probably give you 100 bucks, but maybe we should also talk about the habits that cause you to always run short. And that would be a good conversation to have. And I think a lot of times we view our finances that way. We think, man, if I could only have some rich uncle that I didn't know existed and had no children and left it all to me, then... I could get out of the mess I'm in. But if anything, we learn anything by watching people win the lottery and then go bankrupt in three years, that the, the, the lifestyle is really important. Actually, it's more important than that big wad of cash that comes once. It only is postponing the inevitable. Eventually, it'll all be gone. So as Dave and I are having these conversations about lifestyle, I was realizing some things about me. I was not, I didn't have the best habits. And so even if I got a sabbatical right then and there, it's possible that maybe six months, a year later, I could be run down again and tired. So instead of focusing on, let's go on this sabbatical and get healthy, we pushed that aside and we said, let's talk about what are the healthiest habits to have. Now, Dave was super helpful in that. He talked about the times in his life where he was, and you know Dave, he can be really transparent. He talked about times when he was really close to burnout. And he said, I would just, he said, sometimes I was running, like he, running is something Dave does regularly. He said, something I was running, and I felt like I was running for my life. Some of you know what I'm talking about. 
Or I said, I would, I would set aside this time just to meet with God, and I was hanging on to him for dear life because I was right on the edge. But he'd tell me these stories about being right at the brink because he'd given so much, because he'd poured out so much, and he didn't have much left. And then he'd talk about how slowly but surely God restored health into his life through prioritizing certain habits. And Dave was always reinforcing that with our staff and talking about it and stuff like that. And so slowly but surely, I started to look at my life and figure out, okay, what are the healthiest habits? God, how would you like to bend and shape me in such a way that I can be the healthiest leader that I could possibly be? So uh, I'll give you one illustration. I had one, I had one, uh, I have I've tried to eliminate temptations in my life over the years. Like, video games was killing me for, for like a decade. Maybe two. Yeah, probably two decades of my life. It just sucked away my, my, all my extra time. And still, they're like deadlier than poison to me. I have to keep them at arm's length. My kids will be like, you want to play Xbox? I'm like, what did you say? You know. Anyhow, so <laughs> I have to stay far away from those things because I know, just like an alcoholic who's, I don't say that lightly, I know I can't go back to play around with that because I know that that stuff sucks me in, especially real-time strategy. That's the worst one. Okay, anyhow, first-person shooters, pff, nothing. Anyhow, so whenever, so I had, I, I had eliminated a lot of habits in my life, but I still was struggling with one in particular, and that was I love to surf the Internet and gain information. Okay, so this is often how it happens. Like a Sunday or a, a normal evening, it's sup- after supper and the kids have had their sports and we're all just hanging out. And then I'm sort of a little bit tired and I've got less willpower than I had at the beginning of the day. So I sit down into my comfortable chair and I start to surf the internet. And I often go on Facebook and all my great friends have posted like 4,000 great articles. And I have to read each of them. So I'll, I'll click on them all and they'll go off into their own little windows. And I'll read a few of them. And then sometime my wife will say, hey, we've got to put the kids to bed. Oh, yeah, right. So I go upstairs, and I usually tuck them in or pray for them because Marnie does more in the morning with the kids, so I usually do a bit more at night. And sometimes I'll read to them. I try to read to them uh, pretty regularly. And then I get all that done, and they're all settled in bed. And now I'm even more tired. I have even less willpower because it's actually depletes over the day. I, I don't know if you knew that, but your willpower is, it depletes. Anyhow, so I was at the, I'm at that point, and I go, and this is what I would say to myself. I'd say, man, I'm tired. I should maybe go to bed. But then I'd say, oh, but, you know, I haven't spent much time with Marnie. So, so I'd go back downstairs. Hey, so how's your day? And Marnie's doing something or she's chatting. And sometimes it would be great and we'd connect. But also I know that over at that computer is all the articles that I clicked open and I haven't read yet. So I'm like, so, yeah, your day was good? Good. Yeah, I just, oh, that's really interesting. That's really interesting, you know, <laughs> and suddenly I'm reading, I've got all these articles, next thing I know, Marnie's like, Steve, it's midnight, you got to go to bed, man, I'm like, oh, wow, I can't believe it's so late, I just got a few more articles to read, I'll be right up, so Marnie, go to bed, the next thing I know, my phone is ringing, has your wife ever phoned you in the house, <laughs> it's usually a bad thing, She's like, Steve, it's 2 in the morning. What are you doing? Oh, no. So I go to bed. The next day, I'm tired. I had this golden opportunity happening at work. Every day, Dave and Doug meet at 8 in the morning to pray right in this room. They pray for this church. They pray for people in need. They just really come before God and with your needs and really just plead with God on your behalf. I was making, I was going, I'm just going to be there and learn from these guys, learn how to really pray like they do and spend time with them. But I was finding it harder and harder to get up and be there and be engaged. And I hadn't read the Bible yet. And I didn't know what, you know, the Bible really helps you to pray. If you read the Bible first, then you feel like you're in a responsive conversation with God. And I, I didn't have, you know, so it was getting hard. And I was realizing that I didn't want to go exercise because I'm tired. And what if I work out and then I don't sleep enough for my muscles to regenerate? I'm really at a loss already, so I don't want to get any worse. So I have all these thoughts, and so I, 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 was, I wrote on my whiteboard after this conversation with Dad, because I'd heard this somewhere, how strong is your shed? That's what I wrote on my whiteboard. And the shed stood for stuff. S was for sleep. 
H was for hobbies, life-giving hobbies, not like Call of Duty for so many hours that your family thought you actually enlisted, okay? Uh, So sleep, hobby, and then exercise, E, and then D, devotions. So I wrote those on on my whiteboard. And then I would look at that every day and I'd be like, got to slay the sleep monster, got to do something. So I was trying to figure out how do I switch my habits. And you know what? It was super hard. I wasn't any good at it. Some people tell me about how they, I just picked up this new habit yesterday. How? I was like trying to become a morning person. I've been a youth pastor for 15 years. I don't even know what people do in the morning. I was just like, they drink that stuff, that brown stuff. Oh, my goodness. I'm terrible. Anyhow, I, so, I said, God, finally, this was my prayer. God, bend me. Bend me, shape me any way you want. I figured out two keystone habits that worked for me, then I'll wrap this up real quick. I started reading to my kids in my own bed. Brush my teeth first, get into bed, read to my kids. Read, read, and read. Eventually, I'm nodding off. <laughs> then I say to my kids, get out of here. Go shut the light off, close the door. <laughs> Bam. I go to sleep at 10 o'clock now. Not 2.30. Amazing. But then what about Marnie? I thought, man, do you know that? Let me tell you a shocking, gross statistic. And hopefully this will help you to pray for the pastors in our midst. You know, 50% of pastors' wives, over 50% of pastors' wives say the most destructive thing that ever happened to them, no, to their family, was that their husband became a pastor. So as I'm on my sabbatical, I'm like, no, God, that's not going to happen. No, we're going to get this right. Bend me, bend me, bend me, bend me, bend me. Shape me however you want it to be. But I'm going to live with a healthy soul. I added that R to my shed. It says shred now. And the R is about relationships. It's about my wife. It's about my boys. It's about having something to give to you as a congregation. It's about having more to offer Bend me to make me that man. So a keystone habit that's in my life now is Marnie and I, we go for a walk. Three times a week we go for a walk for about an hour at the Yara Center because outside is not walkable yet. And uh, we talk. So when 10 o'clock comes and I think, I should go down and talk with Marnie and that I know will lead me into surfing the internet. I say, no, no, I talk to Marnie in the day. We have our good conversations. We have great interaction. We talk and we, inter- and we prioritize our relationship with each other that way. And so that God's, so God's helped me to find these habits and shift my life. The habits I have aren't necessarily prescription for the habits you should have. But let me share a verse with you. Hebrews 4.11 says, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. God has designed you, and his ways are that you should experience deep rest. He's never designed you to have a sick soul. He's designed you to be healthy. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works. Just as God did from his. So we're following his example. Listen to this. This is one of the craziest verses. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. This is where it gets confusing for some people. They're like, I thought it was just about rest. What's this making every effort? For me, to be able to enter into the thing that's most vital to my soul, to be able to get up in the morning and read the Bible and really digest it and really absorb it before I go to the church and pray with Dave and Doug and come before him on behalf of you. I had to say, God, discipline me. God changed me. God reworked my schedule. At any cost, I want to lead with a healthy soul. I want to live with a healthy soul. So when the New Testament talks about disciplining yourself or going into strict training or training yourself to be godly, it doesn't mean that it's not. That that is for the purpose of you entering into a place of incredible health. 
That's not workaholism. That's bringing you into a place of health. And I believe that God has a place of health for each one of you. God has the habits that are going to be health-forming in your soul. But you are going to have to fight for them. You can't roll out of your bed and just expect that you're going to be godly. You have to train yourself to be it. You have to let God train you and shape you and submit yourself to him and he'll do the work. Let me pray for you and then we're going to, as a family, celebrate God's goodness in our lives through communion. Lord, I thank you. you, Let's stand together. Let's stand together as a family. Lord, what an incredible church family you've given me, you've given us. What an incredible group. I thank you for each one who's here today, for those ones who aren't here today that that are connected to us. Lord, I just pray for... um, I pray for something to be alive in our spirit. The willingness to fight for a healthy soul. God, I pray against apathy. That this doesn't matter. The lie of the enemy that says that there's nothing at stake here. We come against that in your name. We know that you've given us a great calling. You've given us an incredible mission. You've called us to hold out our hand to the world with exactly what they need. And yet that hand is connected to a heart that needs to be full of your love, full of your life, full of vibrancy, fully alive. You said you came to bring us life and that more abundantly. And God, we want to enter into it. So Lord, I pray for a fighting spirit. All of hell comes against our souls. All of hell wants to stop us from being in that place. So Lord, I ask for a fighting spirit to rise up in our, inside of each one of us, inside of this body, that we will, not, we will not surrender, we will not just lay down, we will not just roll over, but that we will pursue the health that you have for us. We will make every effort to enter into your rest. God, I pray for transformation in lives. I pray, for, I pray where there is sickness, that there be health. I pray where there was uh, despair and discouragement, there would be encouragement in life. Lord, I pray most of all that you would, in this season to come, clearly be the head of the church. That we'd look to you, we'd cry out to you, we'd depend on you, And we know for sure that you are leading us. We ask those things in your name. Amen. This morning, we're going to do something that it's just so much what we do as a church. We're going to identify ourselves with Jesus. We're going to remember Jesus and recognize as we do it. We call it communion because it's a community that does it together, right? In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who got us started, the one who's going to walk with us all the way, the one whose power is going to go flow through us. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. That's what we're doing right now. We're going to fix our eyes on Jesus. We're going we're to consider the cross. We're going to consider the, the cost that he paid for each one of us. It also says in Hebrews 12, it says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured that cross. The cross was a thing of ultimate humiliation, but that passage says he scorned its shame. And then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, who for the joy set before him? I believe that when it talks about that joy, there's two things at work, at least. One, the joy of obeying his father. The, bo- the joy of being in a mission together with his father. And, and seeing it come to completion. And the other part 
is I believe that he saw you and he saw me. And the joy of reconciliation as each person comes and people, millions over the, the centuries have come, millions, billions have come to be reconciled to God. So Jesus had joy facing the cross because of his obedience to the Father, but also because he saw you and he saw me. So today we fix our eyes on him and we fix our eyes also on each other, the family that he's given us. I love when this, we stream forward to receive these elements. I love the reminder of just seeing each person come forward and just go, oh yeah, my brother. Oh yeah, my sister. God, you made us family. These are, this is my spiritual family. So this morning, let's just bow and recognize those realities. Lord Jesus, we fix our eyes on you. Thank you that for what you did on the cross was the beginning for us. When you say you're the author of our faith, you couldn't pick a better word. Because our life story is really about you. In fact, you're the central character of our life story. When we come to know and realize what you've done for us, it's all about you. In baptism, we identify with you. We say, man, the biggest single reality about my life is Jesus. What he has done, that marks all of who I am. And we recognize that now. The single biggest reality of this community is you. It revolves around you. It centers around you. It's originated and authored by you. And God, you're the perfecter. You're the one who disciples us, who trains us, who prepares us for works of service. You're the one who gives us a mission that is beyond anything that's ever been written as a mission statement in any corporation in the world. So this is about you. And even as we, in our minds, pull up imagery of the cross and what it might have been like, as we try to imagine your sacrifice on that day, we say thank you for authoring our story. Thank you for being the central character. Thank you that you are Lord of all. And thank you that you've spoken clearly into our hearts so that we could know your lordship in our lives as well. Amen. This morning, if you're new to Hillcrest, this is something that people who've crossed that line of faith do. People who have come to see Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they participate in that. And that, if that's true of you, even if you go to a different church, you are totally welcome to participate in this. If you're saying, I'm not sure about all that, uh, one of the ways you could participate is just by observing this morning. This is what we do. I mean, Christians do a lot, but this is pretty much at the heart of it. And so we invite you to come and to participate. And then I want you to hold those emblems, though. We'll do it together at the very end, okay? So I invite you to come now.